Hi, and welcome to the East Cobb Presbyterian Church Student Ministry Podcast, where all lessons from your junior high leaders, youth staff members, and discipleship group leaders are available. We pray that this podcast will bless you and grow you in your knowledge and love of Jesus. Keep listening for this week's message. All right. Hi, everyone. Hi. Um, we are continuing our series in Romans chapter 8, and this is our second to last one. So I hope that this has been an encouragement for y'all. This is really one of the most encouraging chapters of the Bible, in my opinion, and, and I hope that it has encouraged you guys. Um, before we get started, I am going to pray, and then we are going to be in verses 28 through 34 tonight. I'll pray for us real quick. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much um, for the privilege that we have to be able to call you Father, to be able to come here and worship you and know you. Lord, as we are going to learn tonight, it's because you set your love on us before we did anything. It's because you chose us before we did anything good or bad thing, Lord, before the foundation of the world. And I just pray that you will speak through me tonight, that your word will will speak to the students' hearts, and you will help us all know you more because of this um, and love you more. I just pray that you will speak through me. I have nothing good to say if you are not in it, God, and I pray that you will give me wisdom. And speak through me now, and you will touch all of our hearts with the beauty of the gospel and what it means to be yours and what it means that you are sovereign and good and loving. Um, Lord, we pray all these things in your name. Amen. All right, so we will be in verses 28 through 34 tonight. So I'm just going to read all of them, and then we're going to unpack them kind of one by one. Uh, So you have a paper, or you should have a paper that was on your chair. It has the passage on it. It's the ESV. And then there's this cool little thing that we're going to talk about that goes along with the the talk for tonight. So y'all can read along with me. I encourage you to. It'll help you focus. All right. So starting in verse 28, this this is a very well-known verse that you all have probably heard a lot of times. It says, and we know... That for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? 
So there's a lot of there's this passage is super rich and there's so much to unpack. Um, I think it's really worth noting first what Jordan talked about not last week but the week before. Uh, we're coming from from the part that talks about suffering, right, and future glory. So we just talked about suffering, you know, um, the verse that says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us. So we talked about the Lord using our suffering and ultimately to bring about glory. So we really need to have that in mind as we read Romans 8:28, which is a very famous verse of the Bible. Uh, for we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And Paul is not promising that everything in your life is going to work out in this verse. He's not, the good that Paul's referring to, it does not refer to earthly comfort or earthly happiness even, but it refers to conformity to Christ, to becoming more like Jesus, to closer fellowship with God to bearing good fruit for his kingdom, and to final glorification, where we will be with Christ face-to-face and be in sin no more. And something that's amazing to know about this is it says that God is the one who works all things for good. So that means if there's anything good happening in your life right now, it is from God. God is the one that is causing it. God is the one that is causing this good thing to happen for non-believers and believers alike so it's not that good just happens to us it's all it's all of god and it's all of grace there are ultimately no accidents whatsoever and we see this in proverbs 16 33 it says the law is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from the lord so someone that i read as i was preparing for this talk uh talked about this verse and said god is working even in the flips of a coin The universe is not a mechanism run by blind chance. It is run by a person, and that person is our Father. And this is pretty easy to think about when things are going good, right? Like the verse, all things work together for good. When life is good, that's all happy and jolly to hear. But when life is not good, that's hard to hear. And Paul is not saying that all things are good. We also need to note that. Paul's not saying all things are good. Christianity is not a grin, grin, you know, just grit your teeth, be happy, ignore the pain that's going on in your life. In fact, there is so much in the scripture that invites us to grieve and be honest with God about our emotion. That's what the Psalms are. Um, but what is being said here, it's not that everything we go through is good, but it's that God does ordain everything even the hard things, and ultimately that's comforting because we'd rather God be the one to be to ordain these things and be in control than them just happen by chance. It's a comfort. And it's a comfort that as his children, we have the promise that it's going to work out for our good. That doesn't mean that anything you're, everything you go through is going to ha- turn out the way you want it to, but I heard someone once say that it would turn out the way you want it to if you knew everything God knows, which is really cool to think about. Like if you could see everything that God could see in your circumstance, you'd pray to be exactly where he's put you today. 
because there is a purpose in it. And that purpose, as we see, is to be conformed to his image. That purpose is to look more like Jesus. That as Christians, that should be the thing we care about the most, is to be more like Christ. More than getting anything that we want, whether it be earthly or whatever. We were saved to be conformed to his image. So this helps us trust God in the midst of difficulties. A quote by John Newton says, Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. It doesn't mean that suffering is in itself good, but there is good to come from it. Psalm 57.2 says, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. And that's what is so comforting in these verses is that you are not big enough to ruin God's purposes for your life. You just can't do that. Now, this isn't a license to be in blatant sin and be like, oh, God's going to use this. That is not how we should be living. We should be striving for holiness as Christians. But there's a comfort to that God uses even our sin, even the evil in the world. God is using all of it beyond way what we can see for the good of his children, but ultimately for his glory. And that's what matters the most. It is important to know that this is specifically for believers. There is a condition here. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Um, something I think that's really cool about, about saying love and not believe, it doesn't say for those who are Christians, all things work together for good. It says for those who love God, which is if you are a Christian, you do love God. But there's a reason that love is used there. And there's a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones that I think really sums up why Paul chose to say love. It says, I believe that Paul had special reason for using the term love rather than the term believing at this point. One of the best ways whereby we can decide immediately if we love God or not is our reaction to adversity. There are many people who in trials and tribulations arise give up. They feel they have been let down. So if you love God for what God gives you, which I'd venture to say is not really loving God, you will crumble when adversity comes. But if you love God for, for who he is as God, you know that that can never be taken away from you, no matter what pain he puts you through. And because of that, you will be okay as a Christian. So there's a quote that uh, John Piper says about this verse that I really like. Um, if you live inside this massive promise, your life is more solid and stable than Mount Everest. Nothing can blow you over when you are inside the walls of Romans 8:28. He's saying if you believe, if you really believe that God is in control of every detail and is working it for the good of his children, you'll be so confident. And no matter what happens, a huge trial or small trials we face every day. Because God is sovereign, and he has purposed all the pain and pleasure in your life that you'll ever experience. And the Westminster Shorter Catechism says it this way, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. It's that like God has his watchful eye on his children every second of our lives. 
And the Heidelberg Catechism says, He watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. So we know that Paul's not saying we will not suffer, but what he is saying is that our suffering will make us more like Christ. And that is what we should want more than anything, to be more like Christ. That God's providence is at work to make us holy, to make us more like himself. And that God's not aloof or distant, just kind of throwing this dies to see what's going to happen, but that he has it all planned for the good of his children. And we know that good is to be like him. But verse 29 follows quickly, Uh, and is tied with verse 28 directly. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. I'm going to go on and read verse 30, because they are together. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So this is called the golden chain. And that's why there is this picture Uh, that is below the passage on the sheet of paper of the golden chain. So you'll see it's foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. And this is the life of a believer, and these are all linked together. You can't be foreknown and not glorified. You can't be predestined and not justified. It's all one. They're all together. And this is a beautiful thing when you start to see what it means that all of these are together. The way that we can know that God works all things for our good is because we know God has always been good to those that he has predestined from before the foundation of the world. And the word for new here doesn't just mean God knew something about you. It's a special kind of seeing. It's, it's a covenantal affection for his own people. It's God's special choice that he foreknew you. This isn't just a knowing about someone. This is a personal knowledge. Uh, a um, author of a book on teaching Romans says it this way, Long before a Christian knows God, God has known him or her and entered in, in anticipation, into relationship. So this golden chain can't be broken. You can't just have one and not the other. It's all together. And really another way to say for new is to say for loved, which is what R.C. Sproul says, that God for loved us, that God set his love on his elect in a personal way. God set his love on his children back before the beginning of time. Derek Thomas says, our faith is not the ground of God's love. God's love is the ground of our faith. God just, God didn't see something lovable in us to save us. And our faith surely did not earn his love. He's the one that gave us the faith to trust in his love for us. So that is the foreknew of the golden chain. Um, And the predestined goes perfectly with the foreknowing. It's God's plan for his specific children, his glorious destination for us that he made ahead of time. Ephesians 1.4 says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. There's also a verse in John 6 that says no one can come to 
Jesus unless he's been called by the Father. The Bible clearly states this throughout um, Old and New Testament, that God has chosen his people. Called here, this isn't just like an, an altar call. This isn't a like an overall call. It's an effectual call. It's that it, uh, someone said about this text, though Paul has preached to many people, those who respond with deep conviction only do so because they are chosen. Justified, this is one that if you're in D group, you definitely have heard about justification a lot this year. It means that we're made legally righteous and blameless before God because of the work of Christ in his life and death. And glorified is ultimately what will happen when we are with Christ and have no more sin. But what's really cool is that glorified is in the past tense here. It's saying we're already glorified. Because God said all, all these things, foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified, they, it's like we have already been glorified, although we are very, very well aware that we haven't and we still battle with sin. God said we will be and it is as good as done. And so it's spoken in the past tense here. We know we will be glorified. There's not a question about it. If you are in Christ, you will be glorified. It's part of the golden chain that can't be broken. Ultimately, what the golden chain means, all of these five pieces, and, and this is not every element of being a Christian. You'll notice the word sanctification is not on the golden chain. Um, but this is an overall link of things that God does. And what it is, really, is saying that salvation is from start to finish a work of God. It's not that God does part of it and you do your half and you become a Christian. It's that God initiates salvation and he finishes salvation. We don't complete salvation that he initiated by our obedience, by keeping up. It's that God alone saves, that he starts and finishes his work without help from us. It's that he set his love on us. A quote I read said, God's choice of us proceeds in every sense our choice of him. If the Lord had not chosen us, we never would have chosen to believe in him. And because he chose his people without any view of their own merits or choices, his people will certainly believe. We are his forever. And I think this is beautifully summed up um, in a hymn written in 1836. It says, "'Tis not that I did choose thee, for Lord that could not be. This heart would still refuse thee, hadst thou not chosen me." My heart owns none before thee, for thy rich grace I thirst. This knowing if I love thee, thou must have loved me first. So it's ultimately such a comfort to know that if you are in Christ, you always will be in Christ, and that he is the one that holds on to you, and that he is the one that has saved you, and you don't have to keep it up. Now this is in no way saying or discounting obedience. In fact, all the what we're reading here should be such a motivator to want to live for the one who did all of this for us. This is not saying that you pray the prayer and move on with your life in any way, but it's saying that we are made right with God because of what God did, not because of what we did. That's really what it what it boils down to. And what we see in the next verses is really a big response to what we just read earlier. Verse 31 onward, it's like a, a, a bunch of questions that Paul asks. 
Um, and it's a response to all the things that we just read. So I'm going to read. It says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So these questions that Paul's asking is in response to what he just said, these glorious truths of salvation in Christ alone. And they're questions that all of us probably resonate with and have felt at times. And what Paul is kind of saying is, if you are living in condemnation, if you're living in guilt, if you're if you are listening to Satan's fiery darts and accusations of you or caring what other people say against you, you're not being logical. You're forgetting what Jesus did. You're forgetting that that Jesus's declaration of your righteousness is completely set in stone and Jesus's opinion of you is infinitely way more important than any person's satan's or yourself or your own opinion of yourself it's completely set in stone and so when we start to buy into these lies of how could i still be a christian if i'm still this imperfect and satan starts to accuse us and we start to feel to doubt our salvation because we aren't where we want to be, or if we start buying into the lies that other people's opinion is more important, or we feel condemned, all we have to do is go here and read what is true. Read that we are, if we have put our faith in Christ, we are in Christ forever, and God is the one that justifies us. God is the one that has made us right with him. If we didn't earn it, we cannot unearn it. So, Questions that Paul is asking here. The first, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He's saying, why are we afraid of opposition from anyone else if the God who did all of this is all-powerful? He's saying, why are we afraid that God isn't going to give us what we need if he literally did not spare his most precious possession of all his own son? I love where it says... He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Literally, God gives us everything that we need and more in Christ. We need nothing else. How are we? How can we doubt his daily love for us if we believe what he did on the cross for us? If you're thinking logically that you can't doubt that God loves you when you look at the cross, you just can't. How can we live in this guilt, wonder if we've been forgiven, if we believe that God has made us righteous, God has already declared us righteous? Charles Spurgeon once said, God did not love you for your good works. They were not the cause of his beginning to love you. So he does not love you for your good works even now. They are not the cause of his continuing to love you. He loves you because he loves you. I love that. It's just so matter of fact. Like, if God didn't love you in the beginning because of your good works, why would he love you now because of your good works? It wouldn't make sense. He loves you because he chose to. It's not because you're, you're worthy. It's because he chose to love you. That's what makes you worthy. And sometimes all we can see is our own sin. All we can see is hear Satan's accusations against us. 
But what we have to do in those moments is look at the cross and run back to the cross. That if you have put your faith in Christ, you can know you are not condemned. And there is a fine line there. There is a, there is a hard line as a Christian to examine yourself, to see where you are in sin, to ask God to convict you and to turn from your sin and put it to death. That should be happening in your life if you are a believer. But we have to constantly remind ourselves that we are made righteous and that decision is final if you have put your faith in Christ. And your standing before God does not waver based on the day if you are a Christian. Uh, there's a story of this man who got really sick and was about to die, and his friend said, "What are you going to do?" Now, I, I think this was a while. This was like back in the day, a long time ago. Um, but this, this guy was like, "Are you afraid?" And I love this dude's response. He said, "I've taken all my good deeds and all my bad deeds." And have cast them together in a heap before the Lord, and have fled from both to Jesus Christ. And in him I have sweet peace. I'm like, oh, that is such a good answer. He didn't say, I've taken all my good deeds and all my bad deeds and weighed them, and I did more good than bad, or I did all. He said, No, I've taken my good and my bad and cast them together in a heap before the Lord, and have fled from both, both his good and his bad, to Jesus Christ. And in him I have sweet peace. He, this man understood justification by Christ's blood alone. This man understood the sufficiency of Christ's death. That when Jesus said it is finished, he meant it. He didn't say it was partially done. He completely bought your salvation. And the thing that's crazy and beautiful about this is that God the Father is the one who did not spare his own son, Jesus. How can we doubt that God loves us? How can we doubt that God is for us or that God will provide or that we have worth if we see that God himself is the one that sent his own son? Who killed Jesus? It was his father out of love. If his father did not spare him for our own sake, then how can we ever doubt that he's for us? How can we ever doubt that he will graciously give us all things, that he will not condemn us because he's already justified us? And lastly, that he is at the right hand of God. He's interceding for us right now. In this very moment, if you are in Christ, Jesus is literally praying for you with the scars on his hands and feet from being nailed to the cross. He is alive in heaven praying for you. I think that that would motivate and should motivate any believer to live wholeheartedly for him. And ultimately know that, that as Christians, we will triumph over the worst pains and sufferings that will ever come our way because we know that God is not going to lose anyone, any one of his children. We are his. We, every single detail of our lives is planned out according to his good pleasure and purpose. And we can trust that. We can trust that even in our suffering, there is a purpose 
even in the small sufferings or in the big ones or all the ones in between every day, there is a purpose. And this should motivate us to live lives solely for him, to praise him for this. That salvation is of the Lord, as said in Jonah, and it is from the Lord from beginning to end that we are made right with God because of Christ. And that should and will, if you really believe it, change you. It will change your heart and it will change your desires as you continue to remember that more and more every day. So that is all I have. And the worship thing can come up.